Have you ever been in a church and heard a pastor say, You know what? David had to take on Goliath because God called him to defeat Goliath. So what is your Goliath today? What do you need to overcome? What is standing in your way? The Bible says we are more than overcomers. So we need to conquer our own Goliaths. Yeah, well, if you've ever heard that before and went along with it, you might want to stay tuned as we go through how to properly interpret the Bible in this episode of Video Game Gospel's podcast, Let's Talk About That, on the topic of biblical interpretation. Understanding the three laws of biblical interpretation is arguably one of the most important lessons you can learn as a Christian. It will help you steer clear of false teaching in your walk and keep you from making theological errors as you grow in Christ. If you understand these principles of how to properly study the Bible, you will begin to spot the theological errors in the things that false teachers say, and better yet, even the things that maybe you yourself have said and taught. Now, before we get into the three laws of how to properly interpret the Bible, I want to prove out one of the points inside this teaching, which is, all theology must come from the Bible and not our own opinions. Now, in order to be intellectually consistent and honest, I need to first prove that this theology in itself is found in the Bible. Otherwise, we are on one hand saying you should get all theology from the Bible, but not doing that ourselves on the other. To do that, let's take a look at Romans 1, verse 18 to 21. It reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. The holding of truth is sort of like suppressing. They hold it like you would try and hold a person down who's trying to escape. That's what they do with the truth. They, they suppress it. They hold it down. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. So they know. For God has showed it unto them. That's the word of God telling us that God has showed the truth to them and they are holding it or they are suppressing it in their unrighteousness. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they, being the unbelieving and the unrighteous, are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. This last part, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Romans 1 teaches us that there are things outside of the Bible, or extra-biblical things, which point to the invisible attributes of God and His eternal power and Godhead. These things are the very fabric of our universe, things like physics, logic, math, beauty, and design. Everything from the stars to the amoeba, these invisible things of God that are outside of His Word, help confirm that God is who He says He is, so that God is clearly evident from the things that have been made, so that the skeptic is without excuse. In other words, paintings don't paint themselves, buildings don't build themselves, and creation did not create itself. It is scientifically impossible to do so, since nothing cannot do anything because it is No thing. Therefore, creation is evidence of a creator. 
The revelation one should receive from this passage is that the mere presence of the scripture itself suggesting that we should be able to find the attributes of God external from his word validates the same word when we are able to actually find evidence of God externally, which we can, especially when the description of God in the Bible written some thousands of years ago is prophetically congruent with the sort of creator that observational science declares would need to be responsible for all life and creation, such as being spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. Because there was no space, there was no time, and there was no material before the world was created. Therefore, a God who could create such a thing cannot be made out of space, time, and material, which is the exact description of God in the Bible. Science declares God, and it reminds me of the verse in Psalms 19.1 that says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. The truth of God is not only found in the Bible alone, but also by the universe which was crafted by the same one who made both creation and gave us his word. Things like logic, reasoning, and math are valid tools to use when studying God's word because they are given to us by God to use to understand and know him. Therefore, these three laws on how to interpret the Bible correctly will be logical, rational, self-evident, and most importantly, biblical. The three laws of biblical interpretation. Law number one, the Bible has the final say. Let's take a quick look at some of the facts about the Bible. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by over 40 different authors and contains 66 books. All the teachers in the New Testament, including Jesus, reference previous writers to support what they are saying, either by congruent subcontextual inference or by direct quoting, teaching us that the Bible is intelligible, consistent, and congruent throughout by simple observation. Here is a visual representation of how God's Word is congruent throughout. Each one of these lines refers to another part in Scripture. It is undeniably the Word of God. If you're listening to this as a podcast and you can't see the screen, you can always go to YouTube and watch this, or you can look at the link in the description where I include the link to this image. Now, even though the Bible is written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors who are anything from farmers to poets to kings, it is clear that God's Word is congruent throughout. And God's Word truly is our solid foundation for anything we believe about ourselves and God, as it is our instruction book and love letter from God perfectly crafted for all times, all people, and all generations. It is important to note that it says in Romans 10:17 that our faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God, further showing us the importance of the Bible. All of our Christian belief and faith comes from the scriptures, as without the Bible, people would have succumbed to the strange and delusional heresies of men long ago, which is why the Apostle Paul, who wrote 14 books of the New Testament, told us, in Romans 16:17 to 18 now i beseech you brethren mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them for they that are such meaning they that cause divisions contrary to the doctrine of the bible serve not our lord jesus christ but they serve their own belly and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. So they serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. 
and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Studying the Bible properly will garner consistent results due to its unchangeable nature, as from Genesis to Revelation it is the same God who authorized it, and led the writers to write his word to us. This is why it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What this is saying is that through the word of God, which is given by inspiration of God, it is for our doctrine, for our reproof, for our correction, and for our instruction in righteousness, the goal of which is to make us perfect. That word perfect doesn't mean without flaw. It simply means to be fully, maturely developed. The reason for being fully, maturely developed then is that we would be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as it says in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. And we also see this in Malachi 3, 6, for I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. So he tells us that he is the Lord and he changes not. We then look at John 1, 1 to 5 and John 1, 14, where it distinctly instructs us that Jesus Christ is the word of God, which was made flesh and dwelt among us. It then follows that if the infallible word of God is Jesus and Jesus is God and God never changes, then his word has also never changed. We can see proof from this from the Dead Sea Scrolls that show us that in over 3,000 years of manuscript evidence, not a single thing has changed out of God's holy word to what we have today. The Dead Sea Scrolls were undeniable proof of that. Now we know in his word in 2 Timothy 2, 3, 16, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Additionally, 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Further showing that the Bible is to be studied because it is intelligible, consistent, and congruent throughout. Again, Romans 1 teaches us that the things of God are not restricted to just the words of God, but also creation which declares his handiwork. Thus things like math, logic, and physics all of which exist outside of the human mind, are evidence not only of God, but of his unchanging and remarkably unfathomable nature. All of this leads us to establish from a biblical point of view that we can rely solely on Scripture completely while also using logic and reason as God has given it to us. While the Bible always holds the ultimate authority, theological hermeneutics such as All theology must come from the Bible and not our own opinions is both a biblical concept and a logical one, since both the biblical concept and the logical concept are supported by the Bible. Therefore, any theology outside of the Bible or in disagreement to the Bible is just foolishness and heresy. So now that it is established that the Bible needs to be our foundation for all theology and all things Christian living. The question then naturally arises, of which Bible should we be reading and studying from, seeing as there are over 100 translations of the Bible all saying different things altogether? It's quite a conundrum. 
Now, the answer to that question is we should rely on the only Bible that has not changed since we received the Greek and Hebrew text. It's called the received text. The only Bible that exclusively uses that is the King James Version. It is the only one that has not departed from the original scrolls and manuscripts traced back to as early as 150 AD, and it is the only one that does not change text or doctrines or even remove verses. Even the New King James Version has used the Codus Vaticanus and Codus Sinaiticus to change the word from the King James in the minimum of 10%. You need to do this in order to secure a new copyright on a work. The King James Version is in the public domain. Anyone can use it. But in order to sell a new copy and have a copyright, you must change it by 10%, which is what the writers of the NKJV have done. The changes do affect doctrine, but for time's sake, we will stop there. If you'd like to learn more about why we believe the King James Version is the only authoritative word of God, come back for a future episode where we will go through the evidence in greater detail. Now, naturally, if Christ is the word of God and God changes not, then his word will never change, which is why it says in Matthew twenty-four thirty-five, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Thus, the Bible is our solid rock. It transcends time, space, and even matter. Even the passing away of heaven and earth, which is what time, space, and matter really is. None of that shall destroy God's word. Many in history have tried. All have failed miserably. So, it is from that place that we base all of our theology as the final word. Thus, the first rule of biblical interpretation is understanding God's word is final in all things due to its undeniable authority and its unchangeable and transcendent nature. Law number two. Scripture can only be interpreted by Scripture. Scripture, with all its inherent authority and never-changing transcendent nature, is the only thing which can accurately and correctly interpret Scripture. Correct theology derived from a passage of Scripture will be congruent with the rest of Scripture. For example, if a verse says that God calls all men everywhere to repent, as it says in Acts 17.30, then this idea should be consistent with the rest of Scripture. If it somehow were not, it would mean that we would have the wrong understanding rather than the scripture itself being wrong. Let's take a look at Acts 17.30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Now, likewise, you cannot take the word repentance, for example, which is mentioned all throughout the Gospels and Epistles, and remove it from your Gospel presentation just because it is not mentioned in one singular book of the Bible, while all other Gospel accounts include the word, such as in the case with the book of John. Not only does the Bible speak about repentance everywhere, John actually mentions repentance in multiple verses without saying the actual word Repentance. John 3, verses 3 to 7, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God which is born of the flesh is, uh, is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. 
Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. Now, of course, the easy believist will say, well, that's just belief. Well, let's keep going then. Let's look at John 3, verses 14 to 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So if you understand this context, the people of God had to turn from their sin and look upon the serpent in order to be cleansed. And it's the same way you have to turn from your sin and look upon Christ. Okay, you're still not convinced. <laughs> Let's keep going. John three nineteen to verse 21. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they were wrought in God. You're still not convinced, I can tell, so let's go to another verse. John twelve twenty three to 26 And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now here's the part right here. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. If any man serve me, let him follow me and where I am. There shall also my servants be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. So even though it's not mentioning the word repentance, it's talking about people that love their life will lose it, and people that hate their life shall gain it, and that we need to follow him, which is a turning from our sin and a turning to Christ. It is repentance without mentioning repentance. So now we're going to compare these verses. We're going to say, no, it could mean just belief. Okay, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And so when you're doing bad biblical hermeneutics, you're going to look at John and you're going to go, okay, well, John doesn't mention repentance, therefore I, it's just belief. That is just, that is deceitful. It's simply not true. The Bible mentions repentance everywhere. It talks about departing from iniquity everywhere. And Christians really just want to justify their sin. And there is a, a whole teaching about true and false conversion that those who love the world and love their life, like we just read in uh, John, John 12, 23 to 26, they shall lose their life. So don't do that. Now, you got to understand that John was the last gospel account to be written. And because so many had already written plenty in repentance, it is clear that John chose to focus on writing the necessary belief portion of salvation. As we already showed you, John's gospel certainly did not deny repentance. And thus, because many portions agree with repentance and even teach the act of repentance in John, void of the word, we therefore have no right to remove something so crucial from our gospel presentations. Like I said before, those who do this preach an unclear gospel while claiming to preach a clear gospel. It is deceptive and evil. Again, John's gospel does not mention the word repentance, but it does in fact teach it as we saw going through the scriptures in John. And by the way, that was not an exhaustive list at all. That was just a few verses. 
This is a classic example of not letting Scripture interpret Scripture, which is what free grace theologians do when they fail to adhere to proper biblical hermeneutics. Let's look at some other points that are crucial to how to interpret Scripture. So number one, Scripture must be interpreted literally, unless it is clear that the Scripture is being figurative, such as portions of the Bible that indicate it is a dream or a vision or otherwise meant to be figurative, like most of Revelation. Number two, the goal of studying Scripture is to have your mind renewed in accordance with the Word, not to discover hidden secret truths and be unique. Romans 12.2 tells us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. John 17.17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. This tells us that we are sanctified by God's word, which is truth. It is not our job to apply our own opinion to God's word, but rather that the word of God is applying the truth of God against our natural opinions. Now, sometimes in an effort to be cutting edge or prove themselves as great teachers or pastors, false teachers will teach heretical things by simply importing their own ideas into Scripture rather than letting Scripture interpret Scripture. It is a reverse and backwards mentality practiced by those who are reverse and backwards themselves, as they do not come to the Scripture to be transformed, but to prove their own theories and please men. This is evil and wrong, and is spoken of against in Romans 16.18 that we read earlier. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. We, however, as Christians that love truth, go to the scripture to be transformed and renewed, to be corrected, to be instructed, just like it says, in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scriptures given by God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. One is an attitude of pride that leads to confusion and heresy, and another is an attitude of humility, humbly seeking after the truth. Which one are you? Number three. Scripture should never be interpreted in the light of personal experience, but rather, you need to interpret your personal experiences in the light of Scripture. People who do this wrongly will say, well, I have seen this and I have done that, and therefore what I believe is true, and that's what this Scripture means to me. Eh, wrong. Your personal experience is not the final say. It is, at best, the last say. The Word of God, which transcends space, time, and matter, has the final say. And if what you believe goes against it, you are wrong and prideful to rail against the Holy Word of God. Our experiences, though they may vary, must be understood from the Bible's perspective and its descriptive commands, not through our own opinion. It is another reversal where our opinions and experiences are first. They are not. They are not primary and the word secondary. Our opinions and experiences are at best last and the word, the word of God, primary. Number four, 
You must also interpret the scriptures bearing in mind that biblical examples are authoritative for the life of a Christian if comported to the New Testament by the New Testament writers. This means that only when something is given as a prescription for living or a direct command in the New Testament is it viable for any Christian to practice an Old Testament principle. You have to remember that Christ has fulfilled the law. Like it says in Matthew 5.17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill, or another word could be to complete. And we are not under the Old Testament law. Rather, there is a new law, a law of Christ, which is spoken of in Galatians 6.2. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The difference is, we are now under a law of liberty and not an obligatory compulsion like the Old Testament law. Christ paid for our sins and fulfilled the law, where the law had no ability to save you, such as it says in Galatians 2, 19-21, For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me, and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. The grace of God and the work of Christ is the only thing that can save you, not the law. You'll see many false teachers import Old Testament commands like tithing that we covered in the last podcast to try and teach people to adhere to them in the New Testament, We even see Peter doing the same thing in the Bible when Paul overtly rebukes him. And you can see this in Galatians 2, 14-16. Peter tried to bring in the Old Testament law and put it upon New Testament Christians, and he was rebuked for it. And so in the same way, if any pastor or teacher is trying to import Old Testament principles that have not been comported to the New Testament by New Testament writers, then what they are doing is wrong. And that leads us to our third law. The third law of biblical interpretation is context is everything. This is something I see so many gloss over in their self-righteous zeal. If you do not understand the context of Scripture, you will look at a passage of Scripture and instantly apply it to yourself or others, when in some cases it has nothing to do with you or them, as it might just simply be a record of what someone said. Recently, I saw someone do this and try to justify their belief in word of faith doctrines through using one of the sections of Job, where they took this section of rebuke from one of Job's friends and tried to confirm word of faith heresies with it. The irony of it is that Job's friend, who said that portion of scripture, was rebuked by God himself later because he had misrepresented God and Job. He was commanded to give unto Job for his misrepresentation. And so contextually, this is not a scripture we should form theology from, as the scripture itself is telling you that this man's theology was bad. It was given to us not as a prescription or a command for us, but rather an example of exactly what not to do. It couldn't be more ironic towards the person who sent it to me, as in the same way Job's friend was offering incorrect theology and was rebuked later on, so is the man who sent this. 
This sort of thing, sadly, is the reality among many Christians who take things out of context. And to some degree, I sympathize with people because when I was young in the faith, I took things out of context too. And as a result, my theology was very bad. So while this person is dead wrong about their acontextual response, I mention them not to pick a bone, but rather as a timely example of how God is sovereign and really is not mocked as it says in Galatians 6-7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Context is everything, and you must understand how to properly detect and use it. The meaning of a word, phrase, sentence, paragraph, or chapter must be derived from the context within that book of the Bible. And furthermore, with the entire word of God itself. Doing word studies and then picking a word definition that you like to then teach something new and exciting is not proper. We have to understand the word holistically as well as contextually. This means that a word or sentence must be understood by more than its mere dictionary definition. For example, if I said it's raining cats and dogs, from a literal point of view, one who did not know that cultural saying could clearly conclude that I was saying real cats and dogs were falling from heaven. But culturally, you understand that that saying just means that it's raining hard outside and that pets aren't actually falling from heaven. However, to a future generation, it might seem as though I'm saying literal cats and dogs are falling on our heads. Clearly, this is absurd to us, but this is what people do with Scripture when they don't use and understand context. Proper context can be accessed by asking questions such as these. Who is writing the text? Who is speaking in the text? Who is it being written or spoken to? What is the context of the surrounding verses and chapters? What is the context to the rest of the Bible itself? Why was it being written or spoken? At what time to what people was it spoken? Was it given for a specific person or to a nation or to all men? Is it descriptive or is it prescriptive? Is it something commanded to all or just a group? Asking these questions will undoubtedly help you ascertain the true meaning of a passage of Scripture without coming to an unbiblical position. Now, part of context also affects how we study and understand original languages. The meanings of words in their original languages changes from our modern understanding. A word correctly translated in the 1600s may have taken on a slightly different meaning due to how languages naturally change over time. To an ancient world, one word might mean something, where to us it might mean something different. A good example of this is our word comfort. In the Bible, it does not mean to make someone or something feel good or to surround them with soft, fluffy things like a cloud or a couch or a mattress. In the Bible, and historically, the word comfort means to embolden someone who was downcast into profitable action to cause them to be strengthened and encouraged while at peace internally about the challenge to come. That's my definition, but you can find out more when you look at Strong's G3874 for more information. So clearly, understanding words is super important. Another example of this done wrongly is when free grace theologians and pastors take the word repentance and change its meaning because they fail to understand how certain words can mean multiple things, which is something that is common to English. They will say repentance is not a turning from sin because God cannot sin. 
And they get this from Exodus 32, 14, which says, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. And they'll say, Well, this means repentance can't be a a turning from sin because the Lord can't turn from sin because he doesn't sin. Now, they're correct about that last part. The Lord doesn't turn from sin and he also can't sin. The Lord doesn't sin. But it's in the first part that they make their huge mistake. In the Old Testament, the word there in Hebrew is nacham, which means a feeling of soreness over something. In context, This means that God was expressing essentially the same feeling a parent has when a child does something wrong. It is a regretful feeling and an expression of being lamentful over something. God was expressing that his desire that none should perish, like it says in 2 Peter 3, 9. Now, the New Testament word that is most similar to the word here used in the Hebrew, nachem, is metamelamai, which is feeling sorry for something, but not because there's a change of heart, but simply because you recognize something is wrong and you feel bad. Judas had this feeling when he realized what he did was wrong. It's not indicating guilt in the word. It's simply saying it is a negative feeling of being lamentful over something. Now, there are two other Greek words that are rendered as repentance in the King James Version, and that is metanoia and metanoeo which do indicate a turning from sin to God. So part of context is understanding that there are over seven words that deal with the word repent. You have repentings, repent, repentance, and you have three in Hebrew and four in Greek, and they do not mean the same thing, hence a completely different word context is understanding that. This is why we must look at the original languages, because they help us understand those kind of things. The reason why is because English is a highly condensed and simplified language, and I can prove this to you by formulating a ridiculous English paragraph. A pitcher hit a pitcher of water with his bat while riding a giant bat after he decided to desert his plans to fly to the desert. This was a fair choice since he was told that the desert fair had moved on. And although he knew this was a lie, he decided to lie down on a strange object which did not object to his nap. He thought this was fine until a desert policeman gave him a fine for sleeping on a turtle. That was seven words of which each had two separate meanings but were spelt exactly the same. Now granted, desert, now granted, desert and desert are said differently, but they're spelt exactly the same. Same thing with pitcher and pitcher, bat and bat, fair and fair, lie and lie, object and object, and fine and fine. All of the words mean something completely different, yet grammatically the sentence makes perfect sense. In order for you to know the difference, you would need to have context, where in an original non-simplified language, some words had up to nine different ways to say it depending on context, like the word love in Greek. This is why original language helps us clear up misconceptions and horrible theology that you see taught by people who are not following the laws of how to interpret the Bible properly. Repentance is a turning from sin, as we showed in 2 Timothy 2.19 that says that anyone that names the name of Christ to depart from iniquity. So let's quickly summarize what we learned today. 
First, we learn that the Bible has the ultimate authority in all things, and also that there are things that God has given us in creation, such as logic, math, physics, and the things that are sort of his invisible attributes. He's given us those things in order to use to know him. Okay, and then the first law was that the Bible has the final say, that in all things it has the final say. There are things that are called audiophorous, things that you can choose to do because you have liberty in Christ Jesus. Then there are things that the Lord has commanded you to do and things that he has commanded you not to do. Those are not audiophorous. Those are things that in the New Testament, if it's commanded of you, you must follow it. The Bible has the final say. So we don't make up our own theology. We let the Bible tell us. And that was point number two or law number two, which is that scripture can only be interpreted by scripture. So we don't go, oh, I think it means this and I think it means that. We go, what does the rest of scripture talk about this concept? And it's from the rest of scripture. Remember that picture that we showed earlier with all the interconnecting. The scripture is not up to our own interpretation. It interprets itself, okay? So again, law number one, the Bible has a final say. Law number two, scripture can only be interpreted by scripture. And there are a bunch of sub points that tell us like scripture must be interpreted literally and less figurative. The goal of scripture is to have our minds renewed, not for us to apply our own opinions to the word. Scripture can never be interpreted in the light of our personal experiences, but rather that it's the scripture that interprets our experiences. And we also have to keep in mind that the biblical examples are not for all people at all times, that there are different commands for different people which led us to our third law, which is that context is everything. It is critical to studying the Bible. Now, the last point is it is abundantly important that you realize that the laws in no way are substitute for the guidance of the Holy Spirit that leads us into all truth. Just like it says in John sixteen thirteen to 15, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that he shall speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and show it unto you. By the way, this portion of Scripture mentions the Trinity all in one. You have the Son speaking, who's speaking of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who's also speaking of the Father, showing us that God is truly a Trinity. Now, you need the Spirit of God to be guided into all truth. A person could follow all of these laws perfectly, but void of having the Holy Spirit, all of these things would be of no avail to them, for their understanding would be darkened, and they would have not the light, as it explains in Ephesians four seventeen to 32 Thank you so much for listening. If you feel led to support this ministry and the work that we do, please do consider supporting us monthly with your offering unto the Lord. Knowing that your help makes it possible for us to create these teachings free of charge to everyone. Thank you so much for being here, and may you stay in God's word in the full context of it. And remember to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Come back for the next episode of Let's Talk About That by Video Game Gospel Ministries.